We are continuing our series in Genesis, and this morning uh, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 3, and uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. If you're new to church, or maybe you haven't been to church in a long time, uh, this is the part of our worship time together when we focus on a particular passage of Scripture, and uh, and then we try to... uh, discuss what it means in context, and give some application for our lives today. And so we're working through a series in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. It's called Foundations for Faith. And so Genesis 1 through 11, uh, so far we've covered uh, Genesis 1 and 2. And we finished chapter 2 last week. And, uh, and now we get to what is commonly referred to as the fall of man. Um, my favorite car, uh, I have a handful, but they all seem to be in the 60s, like a Shelby Cobra or a 62 Corvette, uh, or maybe a 67 Mustang Fastback. I think I might even have a, a picture of the Mustang. That's not the Mustang, that's the, there it is. I know the difference. Uh, uh, and then probably my favorite car of all time, if I had all the money and could spend it on a car, it would be the next slide, which is the, uh, the 66 Lincoln Town Car, black, convertible. I like it original, but I've seen some really well done custom jobs. Uh, but I like the convertible with the suicide doors and everything. An original 66 Lincoln Town Car, my idea of perfection. But I spent a good bit of time this week looking at really uh, bad cars, really horrible examples of some vehicles, and I picked out some of my favorites. Uh, This one and that one, there's a few that just, I don't know why they became like blobby uh, vehicles, but here's a a couple more. Yeah, there's another blob vehicle. Uh, This is a mashup between what looks like a Pontiac Grand Prix and Mater from, uh, from cars. And uh, this is just a very well-decorated uh, uh, Volkswagen Bug. And uh, I think we have uh, a cardboard special. This is like an Amazon box delivery truck. And this one, I have no idea what this means, but I think the emoji there at the top right uh, makes it clear that it's pretty disgusting. Some of these resemble some of my first cars. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've had some pretty nasty cars here. Uh, The originals, my favorites, the 66 Lincoln Continental, the the Corvette, the Mustang, the the Shelby Cobra, uh, those are pretty much for me close to perfection. Maybe not you, I know it's subjective, but the second group of cars should not even be considered cars. They are distortions and corrupted versions of what is otherwise beautiful and functional. And I think you probably see where I'm going here. Genesis 1 and 2 shows us the original uh, perfection, beauty in the garden. The framework and the design that God intended for our world and for us as a way that we operate in it. But all you really get in the Bible of that is Genesis 1 through 2. Right here in in Genesis 3, uh, we see from Genesis three, all the way through the whole Bible, really up until Revelation 19, we see the corruption of God's original and very good creation. This is where everything goes wrong. This is the answer when the world says, why is there evil in the world? 
This is where it happened in Genesis 3. This is why Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul also writes that, uh, that there are none righteous, none who does good, not even one. And it's not just humanity that was originally uh, in this pristine condition of perfection and innocence, uncorrupted, but also the creation, the, the world in which we live, the, the trees and the seas and the oceans and the mountains and everywhere, creation was uncorrupted up until this point. Paul even picks up on this in Romans 8, and he says that at this time of sin, creation itself was subjected to futility. In not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. And not only the creation, but also ourselves. We who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. I think we feel that, right? I think that you see that some sort of sense of this world is not good. There are shades and moments and shadows of good. If you remember last week, I talked about Canyon View and Yosemite and seeing Half Dome and the um, El Capitan and the waterfalls and, and all the beauty of some places in creation gives us a glimpse of what it could have been or what it should have been. And yet then we're back into the reality of humanity. Genesis 1-2 through represents creation at its best. Genesis 3 through Revelation 19 gives us a record of some of the worst distortions and corruptions of mankind as a result of this chapter that we're about to get into. We don't have to look for evil, though, in the pages of Scripture. You can just turn on the news and get the headlines. Even for today, Sunday midday, you could probably find some pretty heinous news stories. Um... Last night, Julie and I went to see a movie called The Sound of Freedom. Has anybody seen the movie The Sound of Freedom? Uh, it's a movie that depicts the reality of child trafficking in such a graphic way, but appropriate way, that leaves um, really no, nothing left for the imagination. It's an important movie to see, but you walk out of there uh, with a real sense that we live in a wicked and depraved world. And it's not how it should be. After we just read Genesis 1-2, through 2, and you see the beauty of the garden, you see the beauty of creation, you see Adam and Eve um, naked and walking with God in His presence and all things perfect, and then we get to Genesis chapter 3. Now listen, this is one of those top five passages in the Bible. I have that effect on a lot of people. Don't worry. If you need to stand up and cry and leave, that's, that's okay. Uh, usually my voice puts people to sleep. Right? It doesn't always enrage people. But um, we, we see so much horror and sadness and sickness in the world today, don't we? So much violence. 
And if you're going to understand the message, the redemptive message of the Bible, you have to understand Genesis 3. It's one of those top five passages in the Bible. If you were brand new to the Bible, I would have you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as a foundational point for understanding where it all went wrong. So let me pray and let's get into this text uh, with that sort of hopeless (laughs) setup there. Uh, Let me say a word of prayer for us. Father, give us wisdom and understanding. Give us discernment. Help us to make sense of why there is evil in the world. Uh, give us a sense of what happened, what went wrong to your, uh, to your beautiful creation and to humanity as it was designed uh, and as you created it, that on the sixth day you could look at all of it and say it was not just good, but it was very good. Give us some sense of understanding. Give us some personal conviction that Sin is not something uh, evil and wicked out there somewhere amongst that group of people. But wherever I go, sin is present. That we are the problem. Help us to see your remedy for our sin nature. Give us uh, understanding, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, starting in chapter 3, we're just going to work through the text, these 13 verses, and, uh, and so I'll make some comments as we read through. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let's just pause here. I mean, what does this even mean? What does it mean to be more crafty? And why is the serpent more crafty? Crafty could also be translated as cunning, maybe in some of your Bibles. And if you were to take all the places where this Hebrew word is used and and look at them and weigh them out, you would see that it's sometimes used in a really positive way. Uh, For example, Saul... um, calls David crafty and cunning, and he, he uh, admonishes him in a good way for being able to escape death and to be able to get away from his enemies uh, so well. Um, on the whole, if you look at this passage, this word, it's uh, sort of ambiguous. It's, not, it's sometimes used for good, sometimes it's used for bad. Here we see it used negatively. Uh, the serpent is crafty in a negative way. He's crafty in a manipulative way. Uh, he's crafty in a way that, uh, that you might see somebody, um, a, a way that a person acts when you get the sense that there are ulterior motives. Right? Have you ever had that sense when you're talking to somebody that, that there's a little bit more that's not being revealed, right? A lot of you nodding your head, you've unfortunately had experiences with that. That sort of craftiness is not good. We don't have any background information on the serpent either. Uh, in this particular passage. He just shows up. Uh, But we do know a few things based on Genesis 1 and 2 in this passage here, that the serpent was created on day 6, same day as man, and that at the end of that day of creation, God called it good. Uh, We also have some sort of mysterious um, insight uh, toward the end of chapter 3 that at one time, the serpent was more upright. And that part of its curse was that it would be down on the ground. Now, a lot of people speculate that this means that this was once an upright, dragon-like being. It's not for me to speculate, uh, but we'll get into some New Testament usages that might indicate that as well. Uh, We also see that the serpent is present in the garden. 
Uh, and we understand from Genesis 1 through 2 that the Garden was, um, the Garden of Eden was this beautiful, special place that God had planned and it was detailed. And so there would be nothing within the Garden that would not fall outside of the sovereignty and will of God. Uh, we uh, also hear uh, here in the ESV Systematic Theology Study Bible describes the serpent in this situation as a mouthpiece for evil. Uh, whom Scripture will later identify as the devil or Satan. Uh, for example, in John chapter 8, verse 44, uh, Jesus is speaking to the religious elite who have rejected him. And to the religious elite, Jesus says, You are a father, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. And that's what this Genesis chapter 3 is describing about uh, Satan, the murderer, uh, instilling this uh, murder in the beginning. Uh, Jesus continued, he says, he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then we get into uh, the apocalyptic literature in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. And we see very clearly in Revelation 12, 9, and 22 that the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That's an insight into an origin or backstory of Satan. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, uh, the angel seizes the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years in what would be the millennial reign of Christ. We get some sort of sense of the origins of evil. Where does evil come from? Now, this is one of those questions that every philosophical um, framework tries to answer and make sense of. Where, where do we get evil? Where does it come from? Kenneth Matthews writes in his commentary that even though we don't get a clear backstory or an origin story for Satan or for evil here in this passage, the serpent just appears. From the rest of Scripture, we know that Satan uh, was a created angel. And we know that sometime around the days of creation that he rebelled against God and with him came a third of the angels. So two-thirds of the angelic force is serving God and a third is in rebellion to him, which honestly, if we're to be honest, still serve him. If you've ever been to gotquestions.org, it's an extremely helpful resource for laypersons and pastors alike. Uh, Got Questions uh, summarizes it this way. Satan's fall from heaven is symbolically described in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28. And while these two passages are referring specifically to the kings of Babylon and Tyre, uh, we also believe that they reference the spiritual power behind those kings, namely Satan. These passages describe why Satan fell, but they don't say when the fall occurred. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, said that He witnessed Satan's fall. He said in Luke, recorded in Luke 10.18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We know that the angels were created before the earth. That's Job 38.4-7. And we know that Satan fell before he tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. 
in the passage that we just read in Genesis 3. Satan's fall, therefore, must have occurred somewhere after the time the angels were created and before he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Whether his fall occurred hours, days, or years before he tempted Adam and Eve, the Scripture doesn't say. And so it's just an important point for us to realize. Uh, We shouldn't speculate where Scripture is not specific. It's not helpful for us to major on things that the Bible speaks in a minor way about. And also, it's an unhealthy fascination if we were to be too interested in Satan, all right, and demons and darkness. It would be more beneficial for us to pursue understanding and knowledge and intimacy with God. So we don't get an answer necessarily to the question of evil, but we can see that um, humans are not the source of evil. When God creates us, He created us, and He said they are very good. The text seems to be ambiguous. And one day the serpent just appears, and he starts a conversation with the woman. So let's get into that. The rest of verse 1, the serpent slithers into the garden and says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Uh, Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we have this dialogue between the serpent and the woman doesn't seem to bother her that this serpent is able to speak. Um, We have no uh, sense that this is myth or imagination or some sort of telepathic communication. Uh, The best way to approach Scripture is to take it at face value and to see its most plain meaning. We often get into trouble when we seek deeper understandings that the text is not really clear about. And so it's best for us to take the Scripture uh, as it's presented on its surface value and for its face value. Notice the dialogue, though. Um, Notice the light in which the serpent paints the Creator. Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And I think you can kind of catch the inference there is that God's withholding from you. He's, he's holding you back. There's something more that he could be giving you. Did he really tell you that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Not at all what God said. And he asked that question intentionally. He paints God in this sort of restrictive, stingy, almost cruel way. He puts you in this beautiful garden and you're not allowed to eat from any of these trees. What kind of God is this? And then we see the woman answering the serpent's question. And she answers somewhat truthfully, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden. Uh, But she also goes beyond what God had clearly said, right? She adds something to God's original command in 2, 15 through 17, where God says, uh, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest uh, you, uh, you will surely die on the day that you eat of it. She changes that a little bit, and she says, neither shall we touch it, lest we die. So she adds a line about touching the tree, and then she softens the punishment ever so subtly, right? God said, you will surely die die on the day that you eat of it. And she adds to it as somewhat of a possibility, lest we die. It's just a good place to add this point. 
It's never good to add to God's word, even with the best of intentions. Uh, We should not major on things that the Bible does not major on. I've seen uh, cultic type groups develop entire theological frameworks based on one or two verses, sometimes even based on one or two words that are used infrequently. Whole denominations go astray when people major on the things that the Bible does not major on, and they um, emphasize minor points in Scripture. So a warning for us, not to add to Scripture either through words or through additional things. We recently watched a documentary called Shiny Happy People. Has anybody seen that documentary? A little bit disturbing, a little bit troubling. Uh, Watch it with discernment, but I definitely recommend it. Uh, It's about a man named Bill Gothard who took uh, some pretty clear biblical teachings and principles and then added to it all sorts of specific things that Scripture does not add under those principles. And he elaborated on them with the promise that if parents would do these things, he would guarantee that their children would be raised upright and would be followers of Christ and would be sent out into the world as sort of conquering warriors for the culture, against the culture, and for Christianity. And the documentary shows the fallout from such a legalistic and distorted teachings, uh, abuses, cover-ups, legalistic systems that don't proclaim the freedom and the grace of God in Christ. I highly recommend you watch it. It's not all true, and those who produced it um, are often, you know, have an axe to grind that is not necessarily helpful. But if if you're a discerning, mature believer, uh, I encourage you to watch it. Uh, And it kind of leads us to this point of emphasis that we shouldn't add to God's Word, nor should we build fences around it. Do you know what I mean by building a fence around God's Word? Let me give you an example. Uh, the Pharisees were an intertestamental development, meaning after Malachi and before Matthew, before John the Baptist and, and Jesus came on the scene, uh, and at the close of the Old Testament, this group developed called the Pharisees. And they started with good intentions. They started really from this idea that um, they noticed that there are blessings for obedience to Scripture, and there are curses for disobedience to Scripture. And so what they did was they started to um, take the principles and the laws and the commands of God, and they started to build fences around them so that before you could ever break the law of God, you would have to cross over one of their fences. Uh, Take, for example, the Sabbath. The Sabbath uh, in Exodus chapter 20, we are to remember the Sabbath. We're to keep it holy because God worked for six days, then he rested on the seventh. And so the Sabbath was meant for man, not for uh, not men for the Sabbath, Jesus reminds us. And so the Sabbath was a good thing. It was a blessing. It was a, a good thing for people. But the Pharisees took it to a different level and they built Um, all these laws, these fences around the Sabbath so that they could tell you how much weight you could or couldn't lift. They could tell you how many steps you could or couldn't take on the Sabbath. And they had dozens and dozens and dozens of laws that surrounded it, and they enforced them with uh, rigidity and with legalism and with strict enforcement. And they became Jesus's greatest enemy, Jesus' hardest words were for those who were most uh, religious and most legalistic. They started out well-meaning, but they ended up as Jesus' primary human enemies. 
How? Why? What did they do? How did they go, go so wrong? They added to God's word. They added to it. Revelation uh, tells us, in Revelation 22 at the end, um, that we shouldn't add anything to the words of this prophecy, nor should we take from it. The clearest commands and scriptural um, practices that we engage in uh, should not be things that the Bible does not touch on. If somebody's in telling you about a practice that you should do, just kindly say, where do you find that in the Bible? Just give me a chapter, just give me a verse, and let's look at what the Bible has to say about that. It's the clearest way for you to get out of trouble. Well, what does that have to do with Eve? Well, Eve adds to God's command, and in such a way it distorts his instructions. Let's look at verse 6. So, this is the temptation. The, the enemy has tempted her. And so verse 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is it. This is the moment of temptation and the beginning of sin called the fall of man. And it's from this one action in these few verses that every evil that you've ever experienced and every horror and every wickedness in human history can be traced back to this one experience right here in this one act of rebellion against God what we find is a tidal wave of mankind and sinful rebellion against God. Every wicked person, every evil deed comes from this one decision in the garden. Leads me to ask, how well do you handle temptation? How well do you handle temptation? Eve was exposed to temptation on a number of levels. In her mind, right? Her eyes saw that it was good. Uh, it was a delight to her eyes. Uh, it was beneficial from what she'd been told. There was deception involved. There was the suppression of God's instruction. All of those things factor into how we handle temptation. In just a few chapters, God is going to tell Cain, listen, sin is crouching at your doorstep. Its desire is to master you, but you must master it. How well do you do resisting temptation? Jesus told us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We also know that in Jesus' wilderness temptations, uh, that he quoted scripture at every opportunity that the devil tempted him, Jesus quoted scripture. Many of you have memorized Psalm 119, 9 and 11. I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. 
We should also realize, I mean, it's easy for us to look at this and say, well, God, why did you put a tree in the garden anyway? I mean, like, wouldn't it have been easier just not to do that? And it would have eliminated any opportunity. It would have eliminated any possibility for all the evil that we see in the world today. It would have all been gone if you hadn't put the tree there in the first place. But I think we often forget that temptation is not just an opportunity for sin, but temptation is an opportunity for obedience. Every time Adam and Eve walked by that tree and didn't eat from the fruit, they exercised and reinforced faith in God and obedience to His command, increasing their intimacy and delight with the Father. Every time they obeyed God, they continued to experience His blessing and His favor and enjoyed His presence. Temptation is not always there to make you sin. Temptation is also there as an opportunity for you to choose obedience. But Adam and Eve give in to the temptation. The serpent deceives them and they're caught up in the moment and they disobey. And then just notice how in that text, the events that follow that conversation are pretty rapid fire. The action is quick. She takes, she eats, she gives it to Adam, who's apparently with her. He eats, their eyes are opened, they gain a knowledge of evil, and they make leaves um, for a covering for themselves. It's just pretty quick. Pretty quick, that sequence of events. Kenneth Matthews in his commentary notes that the creation order of leadership has been violated and completely reversed in this entire sequence of events. God created Adam, instructed him to be over the animals, and Eve was his helper. And now the lowest beast is leading, deceiving the woman who is leading the man, and God is completely out of the picture. Things go badly when we disorder God's created order. And they try to undo the consequences of their sin and rebellion. They make for themselves fig leaves. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Um, and the, uh, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God asks a series of questions here. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I want to talk for a second about uh, they hide themselves. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Does this seem to be uh, part of our natural inclination? Have you experienced this? Uh, Let's say you uh, willfully or maybe even unwillfully, maybe you uh, are tempted and you give in to sin and temptation. Maybe it's for a period of time, maybe it's for a weekend, maybe it's for a day, maybe you gouge yourself on gossip, or maybe you entertain jealousy or anger, or you withhold forgiveness, and you hold on to bitterness, and you're withholding any sort of grace toward your brothers or sisters in Christ, or to people in general. 
Uh, maybe you sin against the Lord in times uh, with substances or with something that you view or something that you say or the words out of your mouth or, or maybe uh, you don't keep your promises. Our natural inclination <clears throat> is to hide. We avoid times of prayer, don't we? We look at our Bible and we skip Bible study. We tend to decline the call from the brother or sister who's calling us and we know that they're walking with the Lord and we just kind of want to put that away. Maybe we skip small group. Maybe we don't go to Bible study. Maybe we skip church. So our natural desire as a result of sin is to hide from that which is holy. As silly as it sounds, where was Adam and Eve going to hide in the garden? I mean, where were they going to hide? Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. It reminds us of Jonah, doesn't it? Jonah received clear instructions from the Lord. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach. And he knows that God's going to give grace and he's going to give forgiveness. And so what does Jonah do? He flees to Joppa and he takes a boat going to Tarshish, the farthest place away from Nineveh that he could ever get. And then in the belly of a whale, right? The bottom of the sea, he finds himself encountering God. Where can we hide from him? God pursues them and he confronts them. In the same way the serpent asked questions, now we see the Lord questioning them. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? To the woman, what is this you have done? Listen, he's not questioning them because he lacks information. God is not saying what happened. Uh, teach me, tell me what, what went wrong, what went astray. His questions draw out a truthful confession. And then we see another way in which we respond when we are confronted with our own sin in this passage, don't we? What do we do? Adam says, well, it's this woman. By the way, you gave her to me. Right? I mean, it's not so subtle. Right? Just a chapter ago, he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my... This is everything I ever hoped for. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. He rejoiced in the creation of Eve. But here and now, he's stepping away and look, the woman you gave me, she's the one who caused this. And how does she respond? It's the serpent's fault. We tend to minimize our responsibility and we tend to maximize blame and we give excuses and we point to circumstances that causes our sinful decisions. We're going to see the rest of the story next week. Jonathan Sine is going to preach really the fallout next week, the rest of chapter 3. He's going to go over the consequences, the punishments, the curses, and even a glimmer of hope and the remedy for the fall of man. But how, how should we end this message today? What can we apply from this 
pretty sad and sobering passage. There are lots of directions I could go. There are more than one application in this passage. But let me lead us towards some hope. Something that we can learn about and believe about our good creator. And I I see it here in that as soon as Adam and Eve disobey and rebel against God and his clear instructions, what's the very next thing that we see? We see the Lord God walking in the garden, pursuing them, looking for them, seeking them out. And there's not even a hint of anger. He's not stomping through the garden. He's not throwing lightning bolts. He's not shooting flaming fireballs and hailstone. And he's not destroying everything. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, calling out to them. And we, we can see in this that this didn't take God by surprise. It's part of His foreknowledge and His sovereign will. We read in Ephesians that before the creation of the world, He chose those in whom would believe in Him. So the, the gospel was a reality before anything was ever created. And because of that, you get a sense of God's compassion and love for humanity. He doesn't react like a furious parent who snatches a child up and in their anger disciplines them. God is tender and compassionate but firm. And you get the sense that He is grieved and concerned for Adam and Eve. He pursues them. He comes looking for them. He asks questions that lead them to truth and confession, helping them deal with their sin in a loving way. There's even more hope in the punishment that's coming uh, next week. And it would be one thing if this was isolated to this passage, but this is a pattern of who God is, fundamental to His character. He lovingly pursues rebellious sinners and gives them grace and an opportunity for redemption. Let me just give you a few examples. Remember when Hagar, uh, Sarah made her leave and she took the baby and she went out into the wilderness and she just wanted to die and she put the baby away so he could die. And, And in that moment, the angel of the Lord visits her and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? And she, she has this interaction with the Lord and, and she calls him the God who sees. Even in her isolation in the wilderness and on the verge of death, who's there? God, he's seeking her. He's pursuing her. He's right there with her, this slave woman. Think about Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, who experiences mercy as she hides the spies. And then is incorporated into the people of God and then becomes a relative of King David and eventually Jesus. Think about Ruth, the Moabite, who experiences the grace of God despite her grief and the loss of her husband. Think about the entire nation of Israel enslaved in Egypt and God visits them and sends to them a deliverer. I think about Naaman, the leper, the general in command of a foreign army who finds complete healing in his encounter with Elisha the prophet. Consider David after he's sinned with Bathsheba uh, and he's had Uriah killed. 
What does God do with David after he sinned so wickedly? Does he burn him down? Does he destroy him? No, he sends Nathan the prophet to confront him in his sin and to usher him into repentance so that he might find grace and mercy in his time of need. And from that episode, we get one of the greatest songs of repentance and confession. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And in Christ Jesus, we have every hope that he will do that. 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This God who pursues and seeks and extends grace and mercy and forgiveness even to the most wicked and rebellious of people uh, is depicted in Ezekiel chapter 34. I don't have time to read all of it, but Ezekiel 34, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. Verse 16 of Ezekiel 34, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them in justice. And it's not just the Old Testament, right? When Jesus comes on the scene, we see him pursuing the lost and offering hope and redemption to the point that he's accused of being a friend of sinners and someone who eats with Tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus pursuing and saying, I've not come to call the righteous to repentance, but, to, but the, those who are um, broken. We hear him describe himself in Luke 19.10 after meeting Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and eating with him, uh, saying, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We hear it again in Luke 15 with the lost sheep. Which one of you if it has a hundred sheep and one goes astray doesn't leave the 99 and go in pursuit of the one? The widow with the 10 coins who lost a coin and swept her house clean until she found the one and then culminating in the story of the one son who left in rebellion. And we see this beautiful picture of a father waiting on the edge of a field for years, it seems, until his father comes back in repentance and he he hikes up his robe and he runs as fast as he can and he embraces this lost son. That's a picture of the father in the garden pursuing, hiding Adam and Eve. Do you ever feel cut off from God? You feel as though he's hidden his face from you and you've blown it one too many times. You feel like you're a lost cause. Have you ever lost hope? Maybe you're a believer and you've lost hope that your wayward son or your wayward daughter or uh, your adult children, that that they're just never going to come back. Just know that God pursues them harder than you ever could. That he loves them deeper than you ever will. And then as he's walking in the garden, pursuing, hiding Adam and Eve, the the word tells us that he came to seek and save the lost. Are you trying everything you can on your own to cover your guilt and shame and to make a covering for yourself? Just know that God seeks you lovingly and diligently. 
and that he provides for you a better covering. And at the end of the chapter, Jonathan's going to tell us about God creating a skin that covers them better. He provides a covering for sinners who return to him in repentance and faith in the precious blood of his only begotten son. Listen, you only need to return repentant and broken, confessing your sin and willing to receive the mercy that he hands. He holds out to you. I think that's a redemptive part. Even in the fall of man, in the initiation of the worst evil that could ever have come, where we can trace all evil and sickness and death and rebellion and wars, everything goes back to this moment, and yet we still see a gracious God pursuing sinners. And that's a good reason to worship. Amen. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, It's so good just to hear your word. Uh, to be um, together, uh, to sing songs um, to you and to pray to you and to uh, just to be able to make application from your word into our lives today. I pray that as we hear your word and as we respond to you now in uh, in singing, I pray that you might use your word uh, to challenge us and to change us and Father, if there are any here who don't yet know you and they are still hiding defined by guilt and shame and confusion and darkness. Give them this image of a, of a father who loves them and who is waiting and who is seeking. And let today be the day when they return to you with repentance and faith. For those who already know you in this room and maybe they have a lost loved one, we pray, God, that you would give them hope. Give them hope today. For those of us who know you, Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that we may be found in holiness and ready when you return. Use this message for your own good and for your own glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.